So how have things been? We haven't been in communication for a while. Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, yeah, doing the usual sorts of things. Uh-huh. Busying myself with various uh, software projects. Very good. Very good. So I received some feedback on one of the YouTube posts that I did of Noblape associated with a tablet interface, uh-huh. uh, a Linux tablet interface. And I wasn't sure whether the Qt implementation would also cover those kind of interfaces slightly better than we were getting through GTK. I think so. It seems to be more cross-platform than GTK or more easily cross-platform. Mm. I looked at QT when I was in university working on Noble Ape initially as being a cross-platform development environment. And nice. I wasn't particularly impressed at the time. It was a lot more, um, I don't know, forcible for want of a better term. Like you had to adopt like a whole lot of additional methodology in order to, you know, nice. get up windows and things like that. But certainly from yeah. what you've implemented, it looks like they've become a lot more minimalist in the past 15 odd years. I think so. I, and like, like you, I probably tried it about 10 years ago and uh, didn't have that much joy with it. Um, but as you say now, it seems to be a lot slicker. Mm-hmm. than it was back then. I think when I tried it, it was still under troll tech. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm not even sure. I mean, I think the thing was that it was being heavily evangelized by the university at the time. So oh, a lot okay. of my friends that were doing engineering were developing, you know, basic GUIs through QT, even on the Mac. I mean, they were doing it on their Linux workstations, but also had executables on the Mac. And at nice. the time, I had a, a precursor to the the generic platform interface that I used with Noble 8 for how many years and thought, well, you know, if I can get Linux as well without too much stress, maybe this is worth looking into. But it was just yeah. so overbearing at the time that, anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is pretty cross-platform. I haven't actually tried it on anything else yet. I haven't tried it on Windows or any, any other thing. I should actually get it up on the Mac again because for a while there was a cross-platform GTK that would work on the Mac. And I was actually able to do some GTK development with that. Um, But, uh, you know, a new version of the operating system came out and Apple pulled some support and they didn't have the developers actually working on it. So that fell by the wayside, maybe three or four, you know, OS versions ago for the Mac. Yeah. But no, that was actually really good. I have a dual boot Mac, basically. I have Ubuntu on the Mac I'm using currently as well which was useful through some of the GTK stuff, but the deeper menu issues that I was getting into with GTK, I just wasn't having much... I mean, I don't know whether people are still using GTK or whether it's just dropped off the, the planet, but... Uh, no, it's still very much alive as far as I know. Uh, uh, GNOME de- desktops uh, definitely still going. I think it's on version 3.8 or something now. Yeah, I think the menuing, they went through a series of iterations where you needed to do like version compatibility testing, and you had to diverge depending on that. And, I mean, there were various menuing interfaces. Sometimes it was connected to the window, and sometimes it was controlled by, you know, the menu bar if the operating system allowed for that. And there were all these kind of interface things that 
when you develop it the way I develop the stuff anyway, it was kind of boring for me to maintain (laughs) this like additional eccentric bit of code. Um, (laughs) But actually, it's funny because I've been spending time on GitHub recently and just looking at projects that are contributed to. And I think I'm going to have to put more, I'm going to have to put the standard like Windows project and the standard Xcode project and probably something Eclipsey or something for Linux just to get people to develop. Because I get, I get the sense that people, I mean, certainly my experience has been with, with Apple, Mac, you know, iOS, uh, apps that are on GitHub is that if I can just grab it, double click on the project, bring it up, do the coding. And then, I mean, it's just, it yeah. makes it that much easier, basically. And I had a aversion to it, you know, back in the day because these projects would be, you know, one or two meg worth of additional stuff when the source was, you know, less than a hundred K. Um, and that kind of problem is no longer really the case through, you know, Git and, and related stuff. So yes, true. My view is if it gets people developing with Noblate faster, so much the better. And I just need to, you know, move my version and I'll probably move it out of the source directory. It will probably be in the same directory that you basically see with the, you know, notes associated, the, the highest level directory. So it won't bother any of the stuff that you're doing in the kind of lower yeah. directories, but it will yeah. be a visual indicator for, you know, Mac developers and Windows developers and Linux developers of various flavors that they don't have a steep learning curve associated with dragging and dropping directories or, you know, build scripts or what have you. Yeah. So that's certainly something I'm going to be doing within the next month or so. And just testing the water to see if that improves some of the Git interaction. It might do, yes. Really, what you what you want is a sort of a minimum viable product type situation where <laughs> you can at least um, download something and try to run something, and yes, with the expectations that it might do something uh, with very little effort, something. So <laughs> sort of um, an easy introduction. Yeah, eliminate the barriers for entry, basically. Exactly. Yes. Um, so that is certainly something I'll be doing within the next month. We have an old Windows machine that I've maintained a Windows build on that I literally have to, you know, move boxes of cat litter and cat food around in order to get <laughs> up running again. So I'll have to dig that one out. In fact, that's probably a project for today as my wife is out for a majority of today um, and get the eccentricities of that up and running. Um, yeah. But yeah, in terms of the broader project, I mean, the, my plan was, are you listening to the new Stone Ape recordings that I'm doing with Heron currently? I haven't heard anything recently. Okay, I started re, I started recording again with him about a month ago. Okay, I think I did hear one a, a while ago. Okay, so the podcast feed should be updated. Well, I've done maybe 10 hours of recording with him that's gone in and perhaps four or five separate episodes right. of that. And that, I think, pretty well talks about some of my current musing associated with the writing associated with Noble Ape, in particular mm-hmm. my kind of frustration with academic publishing. Um, but also that I've written, I've kind of sketched out and written solid points of five chapters for something which I think will probably float on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. But I want to do a project prior to that um, associated with actually a comic book of my 93 writing. Okay. Um, just to test the water with Kickstarter, because I see, I see it. It's a, it's in a very interesting dynamic state currently associated with the projects that are coming through it, but also how you make those projects successful. Yeah. And I think my interest is to basically dip my toe in the water and get a sense of what it is prior to throwing the noble ape stuff in there. 
um, because I think the subtleties which you only get through actually doing a test project okay. um, initially. Right. But from that, the hope is just to get more folk, more eyeballs on it. But the thing about the, I should talk about the chapters. The thing about the chapters is that they are doing completely different things with Noble Ape. So, for example, it's using Noble Ape to edit audio, to edit podcast audio. It's using Noble Ape as, um, uh, to find good restaurants. It's using <laughs> Noble Ape to, um, give a more reliable, uh, weather, um, information. I mean, it's really taking Noble Ape completely out of its comfort zone. Wow, that sounds very different. <laughs> because I think that's something that will, you know, get people's attention. And the problem with Noble Ape as it exists currently is people are so jaded associated with the, you know, the artificial life, what have you. They're jaded with regards to, you know, intelligent agents. They're jaded with all these concepts. You need something that's so outside of people's comfort zone, basically. Right. Yes, I see what you mean. To make an impact. So the problem with this is that writing takes an extraordinarily long amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's not quite as uh, immediate as, you know, putting project files up for Noble 8. But I'm also interested in... See, well, I mean, as you did, you had maybe five projects that you did through your use of Noblape, and you were able to yeah. expand the code and add things in and, you know, refine certain things. And certainly, I mean, from your efforts, I spent a lot of time going in and actually thinking about simplifications and the underlying engine elements and these kind of things. But the thing with my um, job currently is that I'm exposed to not academic folks, but engineering folk that have a wide variety of different methodological backgrounds. And that in and of itself is providing an interesting kind of smorgasbord of this idea would be highly applicable to Noble Ape, this idea would be highly applicable to Noble Ape. Okay. But part of that problem is, in doing what I do professionally, I have a, a, a decreased amount of time to actually work on the code base um, and motivate these kind of things. So, I mean, as you know, for however many years now, seven odd years, I've been recording these audio podcasts. Yeah, by often. My interest is to kind of crowdsource the idea through audio and all the other means that I have available to get folks who are interested in these kind of ideas to participate. Mm -hmm. But I think that that is the kind of highest level of the idea as it is. There are some projects that interest me. I mean, obviously the area that I'm in, there are a number of graphics professionals who could get involved or a number of, well, I mean, in terms of animation and these kind of things, um, 3D models, this kind of stuff. So, I mean, there are a number of components there. If you're going to do the Kickstarter thing, mm -hmm. I would suggest that you aim it towards the, the graphic side of things because that's probably, it's the look of it which probably will entice most people. This is why doing something with visual artists initially, this is why I'm doing a comic book right. project fundamentally, is to actually get to source out good graphic artists who I can utilize for ongoing project work. Um, and I think that's part of it because I mean, obviously you can't provide the rendering or the visualization or these kind of things. If you're seeking Kickstarter funding to get there, yeah. but at least if you have someone who's given the kind of intermediate view, the intermediate artwork, this kind of stuff, then you can kind of get people thinking along the lines of this is the way it's going to appear or this is the possible direction. And it also yeah. indicates that you have a coherent story associated with how you're going to get there. You're not just, you know, taking a bit of money and, and 
<laughs> See you later, basically. Yeah. Which seems to be the majority of Kickstarter. This really. is, I think, my main concern with Kickstarter currently is that there's going to be a substantial backlash, that it's actually reaching a slope. I, my brother gets me a subscription to, you know, random magazines every year, and this year he got me a subscription to Fast Company, which is like a dot-com business magazine. Okay. And um, they had an article on Kickstarter, and this is basically projects Kickstarter. Kickstarter now gives more money to the arts than the U.S. government gives to the arts. Gosh, wow! I mean, they're you know they're they're they don't make a billion dollars, but they take a, a. I don't know if that says a lot about Kickstarter or not very much about the U.S. government. It says everything about the U.S. government. I think. I mean, no, seriously, and it's a diminishing rate of return. I mean, even through the Obama administration. They knock off roughly between ten and fifteen million a year out of that. So yeah, if there wasn't something like Kickstarter, I mean, I don't even know how people are artists, either musical or film or whatever, in this country. It's a very strange phenomenon here. No, that's that's unusual because uh, America's cultural output is huge, massive. But it's um, it's it's very heavily commercially connected. I mean, the nature of the culture that America produces in large part, is very much just a, a, effectively a, a wing of the, you know, the industrial military complex that exists there as well. I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> there was a film called uh, Boys in the Hood that came out in, like, 1991 about a group of young African-Americans growing up in Los Angeles. And halfway through the movie, they're walking, and one of them is advising the other one not to join the military because... The military just abuses you and you don't do anything good in the military. You could never yeah. have that in a film today in the US. I mean, the whole um, notion of what the military is is such a, you know, it's, it's a different thing, basically. Well, that's just a typical old soldier's story, really. And it's, it has always been that way, pretty much. No, I think, there's some, I think there's something more striking that's going on currently in the US associated with... You couldn't have that kind of narrative in the in the public square and in the, in the, what the media... <laughs> or, you know, the, the popular culture was producing. It just wouldn't be allowed. These kind of discussions have to be had in, you know, hushed podcasts or on particular air. It can't be part of the mainstream <laughs> the culture. Coffee shops or yeah, it, it can't be part of the mainstream culture to actually to participate in, in this kind of dialogue in a film, for example. Which is why you have these strange films like, um, I'm not sure if you've seen Restrempo. It appears to be a very pro-US military account of some young Americans that go to a corner of Afghanistan to set up a military base. In the process, very early on, one of them is killed, and his last name is Restrempo, so they name the military base after him. But you get this amazing kind of psychological doublespeak that comes through the US military associated with all of their actions. So the the narrative is that they're going there to build a road. They just set up a bunker with machine guns facing out, and that's basically what they do. Mm -hmm. You know, when they come in and they kill the villagers and they, you know, shoot their children, they fly in one of the generals who goes and talks to their tribesmen and says, it's your fault that we kill your children because you allow the, you know, the insurgents to walk through your village. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you have all this kind of strange, and I think <laughs> what happens to culture in this country is is a very different thing. But so you have, yeah, the only kind of d- dissent that you can get 
in a kind of narrative form comes through these kind of avenues. Yeah. But anyway, returning to Kickstarter. Yeah. So my view is that Kickstarter, there could be, I mean, there already are negative articles that are coming out about Kickstarter and it could. Yeah, I've, seen, I've read at least a couple of them. It could implode under its own weight relatively quickly. And the lack of fulfillment is a really strong problem. Yeah. Because it leaves a really bad taste. I think you need to manage expectations. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people using Kickstarter or supporting people on Kickstarter are expecting uh, to pre-order a product, basically. But that's what they're paying for. I mean, that's the that's the contract that Kickstarter provides, that you put in your amount of money for a specific product by a specific time. Right. And if that's not the contract that's being provided, then Kickstarter needs to change the way they present the information on their site. Right, okay. I mean, I think that's the disconnect. So, for example, when I put money into things that have never eventuated and I contact Kickstarter, Kickstarter says, oh, well, you know, people always come to us and they say this kind of thing. They don't take any responsibility for it, which means that basically, you know, that's, that looks bad on them. It's, it's independent of the projects and what have you. Right. It's a Kickstarter problem. Yeah. My view is that there's a kind of finite shelf life associated with Kickstarter, and this is why... I want to try and roll into this comic book project and then test. So the testing the waters initially with no blade before I go into the graphics part of it would mm-hmm. be, um, these, this kind of programming ideas, machine learning book with no blade examples doing things that are relatively abstract compared to what the simulation has done traditionally. Okay. And I think then following that, if that is successful, then I feel a lot more comfortable asking for a considerably larger amount of money. To, and this wouldn't be money for me. This would be money to pay, you know, graphics people to get yeah. involved, you know. Unfortunately, open source in the kind of 3D graphics realm really hasn't extended, you know. There are certain limits to the reach of open source, and unfortunately, um, you know, the, the division has been drawn through that. So I would have to – thankfully, I have a number of contacts here who are both part of CG, you know, computer graphics, cinema, what have you. And also, um, academically, I, I know a, an academic who's connected with UC Santa Cruz. Well, she's an academic at UC Santa Cruz in their, um, visualization and graphic design department. So primarily dealing with UIs and these kind of things. But I could see that, you know, Noble Ape would offer a lot of interesting stuff for her students. And if I had a, you know, some Kickstarter money, then basically that would motivate that a lot faster than just coming and talking, um, so to speak. So, yeah, these are the things that I'm, you know, fleshing out in ideas terms, but all of these things take time and they take a considerable amount of energy, which would normally be spent working on no blade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is, this is my view, but also what I'm trying to do with these open mics, um, is, you know, talk a little bit more. I mean, in terms of in terms of your use of Noblape, um, in terms of some of the ideas, do you feel that you're kind of technically blocked in any given direction with what you have in Noblape currently? I mean, would you like certain expansions that you yourself have no interest in developing, but you'd like to see in the in the broader simulation? Technically blocked? I don't think so. More, uh, it's more to do with theory, really. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out. Uh, how best to sort of implement some ideas on sort of social reasoning and things like that, and broader social reasoning. In terms of the technology, it might be an idea, I think it has been discussed before, to maybe have a way of connecting multiple instances of it over the internet, things like that. So you could have apes migrating from one place to another. But uh, in terms of fundamental technologies, I don't think there's much of a, much of an obstacle as such. 
the TCP IP noble ape interaction has always been I've written periodically very basic TCP interfaces for noble ape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really just need to throw the source in there and just let it percolate together with putting the project files on the front and what have you, because I think there are probably better minds to tackle that. Yeah. I just need to make it available to them and let them know that the basic interface is there. Yeah. Although when I did that with threading, um, the, the woman who worked on the threading briefly, basically it has to be something that I is continued to, I can continue to maintain. Mm -hmm. And that's the difficulty that if you have people that come in for kind of very short term projects, very short term deliverables, then you'll have other people that want to come and use that. I mean, for a period of time, the Linux implementation was like that. Yeah. So I'm very mindful of the, part of that is my own interest and my own interaction, but I'm very mindful of the kind of long-term maintenance aspects of some of these features. Um, I mean, certainly even some of the stuff that you've done is not in the kind of main development. True, the, the website. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always thinking about ways where we can actually get that more integrated, particularly because you've got effectively the same interface on the command line Mac version that you have on the command line Linux version. You just yes. don't have quite the same number of, you know, reliable libraries that you have on Linux. I mean, they change over time, but also some of them aren't there. Right. Um, I think with regards to the image stuff in particular, the PNG and these kind of things, there's probably a smarter way of doing that, which would be relatively easy to do. Okay. My only concern with that is that it's so, I mean, the core interface is so heavily geared to a specific thing. Although I have been able to bring in a lot of the command line stuff through the, you know, the command line GUI combination, which works really well, actually. I mean, that, from my perspective, gives you the best of both worlds. And if you were to do more of the QT implementation, um, I mean, getting that implemented through, because I started doing it with GTK. I started getting the command line GUI combination implemented with GTK. Right. But it was actually funny because I couldn't get any of the menuing functionality. So I was actually driving the GUI component primarily from the command line for anything <laughs> productive, which, um, yeah. I haven't got the um, command line stuff integrated with the QT user interface yet, but it's probably not that difficult to do, I don't think. It's basically a single entry. I mean, all you need to do is from the... It, it takes off from the entry to execution. If you can provide just, you know, the, the args and the argcs or whatever, argc, yeah. argc in, then it will execute from there. And it was something, a decision that I made very early on because I understood it would work Ideally, I mean, it will even work on Windows in principle with the right kind of implementation. Right. And it just basically splits the, splits the execution in half, but then has a lot of shared, you know, shared interactions. Yeah. So I think that'll be easier than I, than I thought, actually. Look at the GTK implementation, because the GTK implementation is basically there, aside from the menuing part. It's certainly drivable through the command line. Mm -hmm. And that should give you an indication of the simplicity. Most of the code, because it's used on the Mac version, I mean, most of the code is integrated, and it's integrated in a way that should be seamless to you because it uses the same threading model. Right. So it should be relatively easy to integrate. All you need is, I, I think it's purely the entry, because just entering it and populating the initial character, which is still a bit of a hokey yeah. way of doing it. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. But that will that will get the execution to work. Yeah. 
So in terms of other projects that you're looking at, I followed some mm-hmm. of the stuff on, on Google+. Plus. I mean, you... But, I mean, do you see that there is any potential crossover for the projects that you're looking at currently in Noble 8? Well, um, there is one project that I worked on recently called LibGPR, which is a genetic programming mm-hmm. library. Um, that that could be said to be a bit of a derivative of Noble 8, although it really originated from a different project. And that's just a general genetic programming system that includes the classic genetic programming mm-hmm from Coase's original 1992 book, uh, which is Mm -hmm. tree-based, and also Cartesian genetic programming, and a variant of that which I call uh, morphological Cartesian genetic programming, where you have a program which generates a program. Certainly. I seem to recall that um, Michigan State University had some ins to LibGPL, but I I could be wrong with that. As far as I know, nobody else has yet used it other than me. Oh, okay. But it's, it's, it's completely general, so it could definitely be used in all sorts of projects. And I deliberately put it under the, an ultra-permissive license as well, just for that purpose. So I've done a few little demonstration projects with it. I wrote a program called Paintertron, uh, which you can use to sort of remix images um, using the genetic program to mix them together uh, in the classic sort of uh, Dawkins uh, style. Certainly. And also there's lots of examples that come with it as well, uh, ranging from classifying types of liver disease to uh, classifying violent crime. Uh, There's a little artificial life demo where you've got agents which sort of um, communicate with each other uh, virus, a set of frequencies. Um, They sort of mix frequencies together to make a sort of warping noise and identify each other that way. So it's, it's not just the classical genetic programming paradigm where all individuals sort of breed and reproduce at an identical time, mm. you can have asynchronous reproduction, as you do in Noble Ape. Certainly, certainly. So uh, potentially there's a bit of a crossover between that and Noble Ape. It's a similar sort of idea and programs which modify themselves, things like that. So where did you find this? Uh, I didn't really find it, I just wrote it. Oh, okay, uh, so it is your it is your initial implementation. It is, yeah. Okay. At some point I decided that, well, I'd have this book on the shelf for long enough, and I'd never actually written any genetic programming stuff before, mm-hmm. so... Have a, have a go at it and see what it was like. Mm. And it is quite uh, amazing to see it working. Even though you know it's going, it's going to work, it is still quite uh, interesting to actually oh, yes. see <laughs> these things do work. I think MSU had their own like genetic programming library that I thought was named similarly. But there seem to be a lot of these. I mean, it seems to be a, an interesting space. Right. I, I did look on GitHub. There's a whole, lo- whole raft of genetic programming stuff. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's just um, little... Um, sort of uh, student projects and things like that. They don't really do anything. That seems to be a majority of GitHub, yes. (laughs) It's interesting, though. I mean, I've used it recently for finding just Mac A-Life example programs and then putting contributions back in a kind of evening analysis, evening implementation. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, the whole notion of what a reputation on GitHub means in some (laughs) sense is quite a curious thing. Yeah. But I think it's certainly, it seems, it feels faster, but it could just be the utilities that GitHub has built around their um, interface than, for example, SourceForge. I mean, doing contributions yeah. on SourceForge did have a certain clunk to it, yeah. whereas this uh, seems to be a lot more yeah, streamlined. I'd agree with that, yeah. I think uh, the main um, improvement of GitHub is just the um, ability to um, easily pull in changes 
from pull requests. Um, apart from that, when I when I actually started using it, maybe a month or two ago, I thought, well, this doesn't look very much more than Google Code, really. Mm. It looks rather basic. And it, in fact, it lacks a lot of the features of Launchpad. Certainly. Uh, but um, just in terms of ease of uh, collaboration, it, it might be a bit of an improvement over Launchpad. The thing I found with Launchpad were there were a number of features that you had to discover through active search. I mean, I think through simplicity, GitHub has something there where you get all the features up front. There are very few features that you have to discover. Whereas Launchpad, I spent yeah. an inordinate amount of time trying to get the very basic, you know, updates, linking, right. I mean, these kind of things through it. Yes, I'd agree with that, yes. The user interface of Launchpad isn't really all that good. It's not very intuitive. Mm-hmm. I think also GitHub has a competitive component to it. I mean, they show all the squares, they show how many days in a row you've been contributing yeah, yeah. to other projects. I mean, yeah. you feel like you're you're part of a rated community, you know, which is a very <laughs> curious thing in and of itself. Yeah, so you're sort of staring at your little squares and wondering, you know, have I contributed enough? Have I done enough updates and stuff like that? Yes. <laughs> I suppose, yes, that, that uh, is definitely different from other hosting services. It's also slightly buggy. I mean, I've contributed on times where I've gone to it and it hasn't acknowledged my contribution, only to come back a couple of days later, having <laughs> then broken the cycle and uh, found, you know, my contribution there and kind of cursed it for the, right. you know, the lack of interface um, <laughs> coherence. But yeah, I think it's an interesting phenomenon. I think certainly the people that they're recruiting currently, they seem to be recruiting a lot of considerably younger coders. Mm-hmm. The coders who have a certain amount of, I guess you call it sweat equity in terms of putting in the effort in, in various projects. And yeah. it's interesting actually because it's creating a new kind of elite, I guess, which is very curious because they're the kind of kids who probably never would have been hired by these serious companies, but GitHub is hiring based purely on their, you know, force of labor for want of right. a better term. It is a curious thing, GitHub. I'm interested in seeing, because, I mean, my experience with Noble Ape has been almost exclusively through SourceForge in terms of contributions and active interest. And I'm interested in seeing, you know, whether it is just a matter of putting up project files and these kind of things or what more needs to be done to kind of inject Noble Ape into that kind of discourse. Yeah. Time will tell. Yes, indeed. I'm thinking of actually changing ApeScript to be less of a procedural language and more of a functional language. And it effectively is functional in terms of the notion of per cycle anyway. It would just require, you know, functions that are activated based on actions, which I think will translate a lot better to people's use experience with ApeScript. Right. I don't know whether I'll call it like ApeScript Plus or something like that in order to distinguish it. But I think there's an idea there where um, you can actually write quite complex interactions that are based on particular events that are triggered, as opposed to writing giant case statements, which aren't even really possible through ApeScript through normal means. And then, you know, I think that will change the way it's used. But again, I've never really been clear how it's being used in the wild, aside from, you know, a couple of examples that have been sent to me over, I guess, now seven years. Right. Through that time range, perhaps, yeah, the, the need to rewrite it is, is there. If it becomes more functional, do you think that might increase the barrier to entry? Because I know if you're writing, say, Lisp-like programs, they can get really complicated looking. That's my responsibility in terms of how I implement it. But if I just changed it 
from being what is now you know the, the being entry function to um various interaction names it would have the appearance of still being relatively procedural it's just each procedure would react to would you know be reactive to what was going on in the environment i think also it would um in terms of tutorials it would provide a wide variety of example tutorials that probably people who were interested in specific aspects of agent modeling would be more receptive to mm -hmm. i was thinking in particular i mean my time at msu and my time at the a life conference gave me a, a lot of food for thought i basically spent about five or six months decompressing what was a, a two-week experience yeah. and the thing that struck me was the interaction which i put out in audio form with the biologists on the last day that i was there these were a group of primarily bee specialists but there were various other people including uh, folks from chris adami's lab who attended right the barrier for entry there was that they have an acute ex experiential knowledge associated with these you know insects and the behaviors yeah. of the insects but they're not yeah. necessarily programmers and i think that the interaction where you say at the interaction of eating or at the interaction of meeting or at the interaction of you know deciding a mate preference and you make those the pieces of code that they interact with rather than the i think it, it basically changes the nature of the language to be more biology domain specific if you see what i'm saying yes and i think yes. that is the benefit that I've, I've come to through thinking about apescript in that light that right. if you actually looked at these interactions, which are the interactions that the biologists are studying fundamentally, then mm. you have something that they can utilize a lot faster than having... I mean, the amount of ape script that you would have to write in order to describe a choosing a mate interaction is yeah. relatively high, but we already have that in the code. So we should use that code, you know, the code event structure as something mm -hmm. that ape script can hang on to and, and utilize accordingly. Yes, I'd agree with that. Um, you could have some sort of code structure which deals with preferences, things like that. Mm. Um, so you're setting the preferences for, say, hair colour, things like that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, certainly the genetic interactions are exactly, you know, these, and the, as you say, the preferences are exactly this. The one thing that I need through this, which I guess was my great frustration from the whole A-Life Michigan State University experience, is that people who not only I came in contact with them, but who were willing to kind of continue to keep in contact. And the experience indicated to me that the problems that these academics face are so completely different to, you know, what what we do with no blame. Okay. It's almost like we're speaking two completely different languages. Okay. And the other thing is that they need, what they need is a whole series of very simple models. And as mm -hmm. soon as you provide them a complex modeling tool, even if you right. say you can switch off this, 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 and this, and then it becomes a lot more simple, they're still not of the mindset. I mean, they are so complexity averse, which is, seems, I mean, seems surreal to me coming into this group. I suppose that's under understandable for a, a scientist's a scientific point of view. You want to eliminate as many variables as possible to concentrate on what you're interested in. Mm. Which also indicates the real problems with scientific analysis it does yes is that you, we we live in a complex you know we live in a complex world we live in a complex universe the yes the complexity actually creates a lot of the phenomena that you need to understand true and that's a fundamental problem <laughs> I, I i i mean this was this was really the pitch associated with simulation science that i was given 
how many years ago, which was actually captured in a Biota recording, is that the complexity is what the simulation science is supposed to, you know, break through, basically. You, you develop a language of complexity that you can use through simulation science to explore these things. Yeah, yeah. It is, yeah, it is a very curious, it is a very curious thing, because unless there's some degree of academic embracement of this idea, mm-hmm. then it's going to be something that ultimately will continue to be the realm of, you know, engineering hobbyists. <laughs> Which seems really crazy. So, I mean, I demonstrated Noble 8 maybe a dozen times while I was there, and each of the academics that interacted with it, I mean, although one in particular was extremely critical, but aside from that, he still had some passing interest in what was being done. But mm-hmm. the majority of the inter- academics I interacted with were very interested in it, it just didn't map onto any of their research. Yeah, yeah. And these are nominally artificial life academics. Mm-hmm. So from that experience, I started to wonder, well, am I, by the academic definition, I'm not doing artificial life? <laughs> because I'm not modeling, you know, simple walkers. I'm not modeling, you yeah, know, yeah. the very basic things. I mean, the interesting thing was that the philosophers there we're talking about like the consciousness of a rat going through a maze, which is mm-hmm. a perfect noble ape project. <laughs> and the, there's were a series of projects that struck me, particularly associated with termite building structures as well. But in my view is that the termite building structure element was actually slightly outside the realm of traditional A life. They just invited the, the um, academic to speak because obviously she was, I think she was, she was part of Harvard. So she was, part of this prestigious academic narrative, which they're, which they are allowed in, but the rogue hobbyists who have, you know, devoted their lifetimes to this stuff, they're still on the kind of questionable fringe. Um, But the interesting thing even talking to her was that even within her termite models, she wasn't willing to consider like thermal properties, like basic thermal modeling, which you can do relatively easily through an overlay. And, you know, looking at um, the sides of the termites and their reaction to basic thermal and pressure properties, which would explain very easily why they make the structures that they make. Yeah, I'm not a termite expert, but it would seem to me that things like temperature and pressure would be mm. uh, very important for a termite mound. If it's the wrong temperature, then it's going to exactly. melt. Or... Exactly. You have two different groups of termites. They're, the genetic differences are very small, but they build completely different mounds. That's mm-hmm. the problem that they're looking to study. Okay. So my view is that pressure and temperature are the things that these mounds are, make these mounds different. It's the internal characteristics, but also you've got to think of the kind of micro deltas of these termite interactions as they kind of right. lay the lay the dirt and the grit and what have you. As far as I know, ter- as far as I know, termites are uh, farmers basically. They're sort of cultivating fungus mm. which they need, mm. or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. So, again, thermal pressure properties. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. uh, Just thinking about that, I mean, uh, it would be possible to include maybe termites as a creature within the noble ape world. Maybe the apes interact with them occasionally by raiding the nests or whatever. (laughs) Well, I thought that you could just make you could just make noble termites. I mean, you, you could, could just do, basically yes. change could the do. eights and, and obviously eliminate some of the kind of, you know, long-term consciousness elements and just mm-hmm. trigger purely on, you know, t- temperature and pressure sensors and, uh, you know, gathering and collecting and, as you say, the, the fungus rituals and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I think... It, anyway, so I pitched this to her 
but it was still like they, she wasn't even on the level of like doing thermal pressure analysis. Like that level of complexity would have just completely perturbed her research. Right. Okay. So once again, we kind of fall into the you know this. I think the problem is actually the kind of polymath element. I think the problem is that if you're a biologist, you probably haven't done physics to a level. Although, I mean, you have Chris Adami, you have people like Larry Yeager, who are formally trained physicists to get into this. But even within that space, you need the, you need a certain rich kind of complexity that you probably get through particular kinds of, I think, well, I mean, in Larry Yeager's case, he did, he did compressible fluids. I mean, his PhD is, you know, check engine research and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, right. my, my view is that the, probably the people exist out there, but they're not in the general population. And they're certainly not people who would, you know, be, be motivated to kind of continue the research, which is mm-hmm. the difficulty. Yeah. I had some interesting meetings at ALF. It, it left me feeling, who was I in this community? Particularly after the work with Biota, which is almost, I mean, it was interesting actually. There was a, a contingent from Poland, um, and a few other academics, uh, uh, an Irish academic who approached me and said, you know, write on about biota. Mm-hmm. But in general, and actually the folks in the UK who, um, you know, wanted you to come down and speak, they were yeah. very positive about the whole biota narrative. But in general, the problem with the conference as well was about, it was a conference of about 200 people, of which 80 people were graduate and undergraduate students from Michigan State University. Okay. And as this is recorded, I probably should be careful about the level of positivity that I put towards Michigan <laughs> State University. But I did find it a very strange, very strange place um, on a number of levels. I mean, the academics I met were were generally very nice, but uh-huh. it just seemed to be like the end of the earth associated with the kind of stuff that you'd want to be doing. I mean, in terms of just the sheer in the environment. I mean, for a start, you know, the kind of I was there through the nicest part of the year, but also it's a heavy sports-oriented university. You just got the sense that this was like a small island in a sea of, um, you know, American kind of collegiate football and all that other related stuff, which I guess exists in a lot of places. I mean, it even exists in the kind of, you know, Ivy Leagues and Stanford and Berkeley and what have you, but it's just, it doesn't, it isn't so completely in your face Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, I just, you know, I think that ultimately, certainly following academics and where academics has gone, there was a fellow called um, Kerr. What was his first name? I want to say Dave Kerr, but obviously it's not Dave Kerr. Uh, he was a MSU graduate and he set up a, a facility in Washington, um, Washington State. And that seemed kind of interesting. And we talked a bit about Nova Lake there. But mm-hmm. um, in general, you know, in general, it was just like I was an alien in this environment. The artificial life academics have gone in their own particular direction, and you put me there having not ever attended any of these conferences, and, you know. So, just as a question, what kind of direction have these academics gone in? Uh, are they becoming behaviorists or something like that? No, not even that. I mean, I think what's happened is a kind of eulogization of the history of the early artificial life conferences. And okay. because they have such... I mean, so, for example, the open-source robotics stuff that was done at um, at Cornell was kind of interesting, except it was, you know, $1,500 open-source robots, right. which I said, this is just ridiculous. Why aren't you guys <laughs> going to the maker community? And I've, had, I've interacted with some of the academics since. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, I saw maybe a $200 robot at most, which could easily be microized down to, yeah. you know, $30, $40 robot. I mean, even mm-hmm. the, the robots that they were using at Harvard were $1,000 a pop. The cheapest right. robots that they had were for, for swarm organization were like $500 each. I mean, the whole notion of that they've just completely lost track of what the maker community. <laughs> Well, $500 per robot uh, by academic and institutional standards is nothing, really. Uh, PR2 or something, you're probably looking at uh, a couple of orders orders of magnitude greater than that. But it's not an open-source robot. Right, okay. You can't call something an open-source robot if you produce it for $1,500, because the barrier for entry... It's too yeah, great it's too to get the contribution. So I yeah. asked them, for example, why don't you make a robot simulation and put mm-hmm. your open source robot in the robot simulation and optimize it through the simulation to bring the price down? Right. And we, I spent, I spent probably through three separate conversations about an hour and a half talking with various people associated with this and kind of continued it online with a few of the other people who weren't there. Mm-hmm. But the thing that struck me was just a real disconnect. You can't call, I mean, what I call open source and what they were calling open source was something completely different. And the notion that they would create an artificial life robot that they didn't have a simulation mm-hmm. associated with, like a computer simulation that would optimize it, just seemed to me to be quite surreal. They also didn't have every component of it open source. So they were open sourcing various components, which meant at the time of launch, only a small fraction of what was supposed to be open source was actually open source. The other thing that struck me was that if you're going to create an open source robot, you want to have a simulation environment that actually can output the parts, which is something independently that they're doing, I think, in um, maybe, where is it? I thought it was Cornell as well. Yeah, it's Cornell as well. There's like an open source parts project, which I think is actually being done within the same group. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, these these components just weren't working together. It was very, very strange. I mean, I think the thing that strikes me is that industry and, you know, what we do as kind of open source hobbyists just has a completely different set of problems to the academics. And the academics live in their problem space. But if they spend a bit of time in industry or spend a bit of time, you know, working on what we call open source... Mm-hmm then they would eliminate a number of the problems that they see, but they're just not in the mindset of doing that. Well, in the realm of robotics, um, open source has been pretty successful in the last few years with the robotics operating system. Hmm. And I know that a lot of uh, academic institutions uh, have been using that and contributing code back. Yeah. So that's been pretty successful. I mean, it's been probably the most successful open source robotics project that I've ever seen. So. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's not all bad news, as to be said. You've contributed to ROS too, haven't you? Yes, yeah, I've written drivers for it and stuff yeah. like that, yes. Do you, do you have any questions, any ideas, any thoughts, any directions you want to take the conversation? <laughs> well, I suppose there are um, various outstanding threads. There are lots of uh, things which would be nice to have in Noble Ape, which haven't been included yet. There's the, the, um, uh, the death function or part of it, mm-hmm. where an ape might stick around after death for some amount of time. You'd have the body which might drift on the tide or whatever. And there's also all, so- all sorts of other little odds and ends. Within the um, QT user interface, I think um, uh, the next thing to include would be the indicators that I wrote maybe over a year ago. Mm. 
So you can actually see how many apes are grooming over time, things like that. You get more idea of what's happening in the simulation. That graph screen, the notion of actually having graphs of the indicators over time, yeah. is something that I would pull back in an instant into the mm-hmm. into you know the Mac and Windows versions. That's been a missing feature for a long period of time. The yeah. only concern with the indicators is that um, they're kind of partially in the simulation and partially not in the simulation. The interface, I think, needs to mm-hmm. change in some way. I think almost that there needs to be dynamic indicators. Right. The indicator structure is so rigid that you would, when you start doing graphing of it, you want to actually be able to switch between indicators um, right. in a way where you can do comparisons and maybe yeah, even calculus. Yeah. I mean, calculus on the indicators would be really powerful, but that means that you need a much, a slightly, well, probably a slightly more generic interface for the indicators than is there currently. I think I'd be right, yes. Because the ability to do calculus, to actually look over time and differentials and these kind of things, I mean, these are the, these are the basic scientific tools that academics need. Yeah. And yeah, the way to do that, particularly with data output and all this kind of stuff, would be a really useful feature universally. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it does take a little bit of thought about it rather than just creating like large structures of these <laughs> indicators and inserting them at various points. But yeah, yeah, I think this problem. The thing is that if you get the interface right as well, it would be really easy to to kind of continue to add these things. The the problem with the current indicator. Yeah, so to sort of pick your parameters and then graph them. Yeah, exactly. I think it almost should be string based. Yeah. Basically, the indicators identify themselves as strings, which are placed at points through the code, and then from that, the indicator, you know, the the, the primary indicator, what have you, functions then take over. And then you get yeah. all the graphing and stuff for every new indicator that you add as well. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, I'll think about that. I've, I've got a bit of time I can actually put into that, but it would probably change your code quite substantially in terms of the way it looked immediately. But in terms of the actual output functionality, probably not so much. The benefit as well is that once you have string indicators, you can do, you know, not only calculus operations, but you can do mathematical operations to say, you know, these kind of behaviours all together versus mating. What is actually contributing here to mating? Let's take these, see if they're contributing, let's knock them out, and you can see that graphically relatively quickly. Yeah, that would be really good to have. Yeah. I'll think a bit more about this, Bob. I think there's a, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of indicator primitive that probably needs to be written out, and from that we could probably get a lot more from it. Yeah. But in terms of the graphing as well, I mean, this is something that I've had graphing periodically through Noble 8, um, particularly early on, and then just removed it because, well, for a variety of reasons, probably because it's not particularly um, maintainable. But yet to have another window that was a graphing window that was scalable, that had all these kind of properties would be very, very useful. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're somewhat naturally averse to having multiple windows, however, through QT. <laughs> well, not, not especially. I don't really have anything hugely against this. Um, it's just that when I was when I was writing the QT interface, I I didn't think of should I have the same as the GCK interface with multiple windows, or should I just keep it all within one window? Yeah, my concern with the multiple windows analysis is that it's not multiple windows. Actually, it's two or three windows. It's not the GIMP perspective where you have windows on windows on windows and windows that control windows <laughs> that control windows. It's that you have three windows, each that have very well defined things that have very well defined interfaces to them. And I guess yeah. that's my view that 
having a few windows if they have different interfaces and could be used in concert is probably mm. actually a good thing. It might be. It's an experiential thing, I think, more than anything. That if you haven't had the experience with, I mean, this is the my frustration in part that the you know the Mac version is the one that I primarily develop. If you don't have that experience on a regular basis, particularly combination of command line and graphics, yeah, then it's very yeah. difficult to convert someone. <laughs> yeah, well, there's an obvious advantage in having um, the command line stuff separate from the the GUI, so you can put them side by side or whatever. If I was just switching between the command line and the GUI. It maybe wouldn't be quite so uh, interesting. It would be difficult to keep, to keep track of parameters and things. Certainly. And the thing that I found particularly is that it's it's driven functionality through the command line. <laughs> because what you want is the simulation running in real time while you're typing commands in, in real time. Yeah. And when you want to stop things, you want to stop things. And when you want conditions or you want to explore events, you want them in real time together with the, with the graphics. Um, yeah, yeah. So for that, at least, there is a, a definite case for having mm. uh, more than one window. Any other features that uh, that grab you? Um, just staying on that tack, another possibility would be to have um, uh, more than one uh, display within the same window. So you could have them maybe side by side or on top of each other, things like that. But it would be within the same actual window structure. My frustration with that has always been... Um, complexity, unnecessary complexity through that. The windows in and of themselves are relatively complex entities, and when you start dividing them and subdividing them, I did that... So, for example, the in the late 90s, there was a first ape perspective engine, mm -hmm. which okay. was similar to Ocelot, but was from the ape's perspective, and then it, you, you saw kind of, you know, the rolling waves, and you saw... I'm not yeah. sure if you've ever seen any video of that... That engine, I started doing uh, like split screen and four to a screen views, where you would see four different apes views. Okay. And they could see the other apes and these kind of things. They weren't apes; they were dots on the ground. But you know, you know what I'm saying. That basically, yeah. See them. And that was interesting, but also it was kind of visually overwhelming, and it was very easy to kind of lose what was going on in the mm -hmm. interaction. It was cute in some sense because you could see you could see um but that was also based on the f kind of first ape perspective view that seeing the apes interaction from their own views even though you were looking into a very you know barren graphical landscape yeah was quite interesting you could see hesitation and you know mm -hmm. looking away and particularly their interactions with the water so, yes, right. I guess there's some benefit in that, um, but it comes from that specific view. Other views, I mean, obviously the whole map view, you're not going to be segmenting. Mm -hmm. The only view that really you'd want to be segmenting is the um, the isometric view. And even within that, I mean, I now have a stretchable on the Mac version, I have a stretchable isometric view, yeah, uh, which means that you can cover vastly more of the uh, space through that. Yeah. The the twitchiness of the isometric view is always problematic because the you know the ape direction is always into the screen. Mm -hmm. So you could remove that and you could just have a kind of floating isometric camera. Um Maybe. Uh, but then again, so I mean in a case by case basis I'm willing to look at the potential of including split screens. Mm -hmm. But the only screen that would be applicable currently would be the isometric view and through the indicators you basically are seeing all apes together at once anyway. So what what particular functionality would you look to split screen? 
Um, well, I was just thinking that um, if you just think of the conventional user interface where you've got the map view and the 3D view, rather than having those in two separate windows on their own, they could be in the same window, but just side by side mm. as, as separate graphics objects. So uh, I, think, I think it's graphics view within Qt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I consider that. My only concern is the, inter- the drag interface. Mm-hmm. So there's a very definite kind of mouse interface where the problem is you lose mouse context okay. because the drag starts in one window and potentially can go outside that window, but you would lose mouse context in that environment because when you were dragging the ape, for example, you would come to the boundary point and then you're not really dragging the, I mean, it would be an interesting effect to actually drag the ape into the isometric view and then see what that, you know, you then go for that. I mean, that's, but that's not associated with the interface. I mean, basically just by selecting the ape initially, yeah. you'll immediately see the isometric view. So I'm mindful of these kind of user interface components, the way it's used mm-hmm. currently. I mean, I was mindful of that, for example, with the iPad version, because the, that's exactly the case where you do want them side by side, perhaps. And there, it is really very curious in terms of, you know, the boundaries of interface, basically. And my option has always been now to have, when you hold the iPad in the landscape that you see the isometric projection view, and when you hold it in the portrait, you see a smaller, less interactable version of the isometric projection and the map view. Right. That's just, a, I think, a better interface. When you're in holding in landscape, you want the effective richness of the isometric projection and the, you know, the interaction there. Uh, but mm-hmm. when you're holding it in portrait, you're in a, you know, you're more in a kind of clipboard viewing mode, basically associated yeah. with it. Any other, any other particular features or ideas? Well, um, one idea is that, um, the, the way that the, um, the social graph is implemented at the moment, uh, pro- probably could be improved, but I haven't really thought it through tremendously at the moment. Um, um, it can consist of a number of um, apes that have been remembered. Um, but probably that, that needs to be generalised a bit more so that you can have things like stereotyping and stuff like that where you, you're not really remembering a specific ape, but you're remembering a class of apes or something like that. Mm. Or a, a tribe of apes, perhaps. Yeah, the simplification to the normal, which is what you're saying here, I and mean, the simplification to a particular normal, a particular stereotype, is something mm-hmm. that was discussed actually early on in the simulation by Bo Daly. It's referenced in the original manuals, I think. Um, and I think that would be actually very good because what you get through that is a series of decisions that have to be made, um, obviously not on a kind of noble ape, ape's conscious level, but on some kind of subconscious level associated with when you actually do that simplification and grouping. Right. And th- what what also happens is that you have a single ape that can participate in two different stereotypes. Yes, you could do, yeah. So you, you have a whole series of different issues, like, for example, an older ape that is in your family, or in the selected apes family, has both the old people, old ape stereotype, and also the family stereotype. <laughs> you know, so you have all these strange... So you could have a, you could have a sort of hierarchy of stereotypes, almost. Yes. It would get, it would get very interesting, but I also think it's, there's, there's some really interesting phenomena within that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you start then looking at, you know, whether stereotypes actually come through just average experiences or whether they come through either extremely bad or extremely good experiences. I mean, there's, there's a lot of argument associated with this whole notion of truth in stereotypes or are stereotypes just the worst possible 
I mean, the, 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 the classic stereotype that I will use here, because it's relatively neutral, is the American tourist. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. There are countless Americans that tour the world and ne- never get into strange or curious circumstances. <laughs> but the ones that do typically tend to be extremely vocal and draw attention to themselves. Yes. And it's interesting that... Um, and moreover... Um, Many, many internationally traveled folk that you meet in this part of the world are very well aware of those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're very definitely not those people. So <laughs> you, you have this very curious thing where in creating normalization, you almost need a, is this a, is this a view neutral stereotype? Or is this a view positive stereotype? Or is this a view negative stereotype? Mm-hmm. And sometimes there are view positive stereotypes. I mean, in certain communities, Certain stereotypes are actually very positive and perhaps far too positive compared to the normal. They tend not to be what we would classify as stereotypes, but they may be more what we classify as archetypes or these kind of things. But it yeah, is actually yeah. very curious about the, um, the, the, this whole phenomenon isn't just associated with positive, well, it isn't just associated with negative or neutral. There are also positive elements as well. Exactly. Well, it's, it's um, associated with identity. Yeah. And identity could be built up in a kind of component-like way yeah. so that recognising a specific individual is actually, you can unpack that into sort of multiple subcomponents of different identities. It becomes considerably more dynamic, and this is what interests yeah, me, yeah. that if you, if you created a forcing which said that there were only maybe 50 possible social entities that each ape could contain, And what Mm -hmm. would happen is as soon as it got to the level of, you know, maybe 48 or maybe 47, it would have to start to run this community stereotype code and actually start simplifying the social interactions that it had. It's it's one of these things where you have a a general fixed limit. You could maybe think about it as a kind of compression almost. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting idea, certainly, and definitely could be something, something, uh, developed in future. The problem is six is just too few, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we have, there are just too few currently to do that adequately, but somewhere between about 20 and 50 is probably the right number to actually create some really quite interesting um, examples. Yeah, I think so, yes. So any other ideas, anything else you want to float? The only other thing that I was thinking of was that um, termites are kind of interesting in that they would introduce a constriction element. At the moment, noble apes don't actually construct anything. Mm. But termites are definitely builders of things. They actually move stuff around, whereas at the moment the, the landscape is static, more or less, yes. in terms of its geography. Whereas termites would definitely change the geography. Yeah, it becomes like a traditional kind of voxel problem, that you just have kind of yeah, voxel maybe, space. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, and it's interesting associated with structure, because within voxel space, structure has a, 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 a primary logic which creates the physics for the environment. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a relatively interesting problem. So this is what excited me also about the, the noble termites idea was exactly this, that you would need a voxel space that was, um, you know, malleable um, in some very fundamental sense. Yeah. Okay. And also through that, you get kind of experiential physics because, I mean, obviously physics exists independently from the termites. They just have mm-hmm. to discover the physics. There's also a related idea in that Maybe you could have a sort of plug-in system where you can develop maybe uh, algorithms for a particular species and then you plug it into the simulation. 
so that you can have termites and apes at the same time, mm. or some combination of some other species. Yeah, the voxel simulation environment is something that I've considered at various points, but, I mean, it's ideal. The current state of processing is absolutely ideal for that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. You'd have erosion. I mean, if you continued the current simulation method, you'd have continuous erosion, which would actually be really quite interesting because the termites and the apes would ultimately be wor- working together to combat that erosion fundamentally. And what Right. Imagine the noble ape simulation environment, like the, the physical space of it, in yeah. voxel form. So yeah. you have rain, you have tides. Rain yeah. and tides both work against the voxel space in terms of moving it into the water. Yes. Yet neither the termites nor the apes want to live in the water, <laughs> so they have a natural incentive on termites on a kind of micro level and the apes on a kind of macro level to reinforce yeah. their structures, be it through planting things, uh, be it through avoiding deforestation, be it through yeah. just sheer experience, but you have a very interesting kind of metaphor for environmentalism in that simulation. I suppose so, yes, yes, it's true, yeah. No, that's very interesting. I'll have to think about that because it'd be relatively easy to implement uh, and you would just have very, very... I mean, you could use exactly the same interface as exists currently in terms of visualisation in almost all parts, Mm-hmm. You'd maintain the same weather, you'd maintain the same tidal structure. You would just yeah. have a, a progressive disintegration on the environment and you would have to f- uh, create a series of new event types that associated with almost like dredging and building that the apes would have to perform. I mean, eliminating the termites initially mm-hmm. okay. from the equation. You could still get some interesting interaction, particularly if you take grasses, the kind of subtle deforestation elements, the you know, overconsumption of berry bushes causing them not to, um, you know, continue. I mean, the way, the way in which the apes interact with the vegetation and the kind of feedback loop, you would need, I mean, you could have things like quicksand and a wide variety of other interesting elements yeah. there too. You could also oh, have yeah. forced irrigation and these kind of things, which, you know, you get a wide variety of quite interesting environmental uh, attributes when you have deforming terrain. Nice, yes. Yeah. And then, of course, you get burial and all that other death-related stuff too. True. And just thinking about it, it's maybe this, these kinds of problems that sort of early humans had to face to, have, uh, to sort of gave them, give them a motivation to try and alter their environment in some way, to sustain it all, um, to keep themselves going. I've got a week off, Bob. Okay. So that's my problem for the week off. <laughs> <laughs> I will implement the, the code accordingly. Um, and then, yeah, also with, with a, with a slight side of, um, dynamic indicator code. And we'll take it from there. Yes, okay. What are you reading currently? I can give you, I think, I think that what I'm reading at the moment is called, um, Baboon Metaphysics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about, uh, um, the lives of baboons, um, and social intelligence, which is obviously related to Noblape, of course. I haven't really got very far into it, but, um, some interesting little, uh, uh, snippets of knowledge uh, in the first few chapters. So I discovered in a bookstore, but I didn't purchase because the, it was a very strange... I mean, I flicked through it um, last weekend, a book on bonobos, mm-hmm. which was kind of bonobo metaphysics. But the thing that irritated me about the book was that there was a very attractive female primatologist on the front cover of it. And of course, you know, <laughs> bonobos, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, And I thought, this doesn't strike me... I mean, I, I kind of flicked through it, and there were some interesting points. 
but I thought it was more about perhaps selling the book than actually having some discussion or some discourse on bonobos. <laughs> um, so I've got up Bonu Baboon Metaphysics, The Evolution of the Social Mind. Yeah. Okay. I'll add it to my reading list too. One thing I learned from that that I didn't know was that um, in some areas of Africa, baboons were used as um, sort of um, almost like sheepdogs, but smarter than sheepdogs, in that um, if um, a lamb strayed away from the mother, uh, the baboon would be able to tell which lamb went which, which, which mother. So they had sort of a, enough intelligence to be able to keep track of families and things like that. It was quite interesting. And I think there's another example of a baboon being used as a, um, a train uh, signal operator, which is quite strange. But uh, it just shows that they're smart enough to do that sort of thing. I mean, there, although it's, it's parodied, there is the notion of the, you know, the monkey butler as well, which existed in terms of <laughs> baboons too, where they would, you know, they would live with an individual and do a wide variety of, you know, subjugated tasks through it. I think in the olden days there was a whole um, set of TV adverts around us. <laughs> yes, we have Andy calling mm. in. <laughs> oh, okay. Hello, Andy. Good to have you on. Hello. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. We also have on Bob Bottrom. Hello there. Hi, Hi Bob. Hi, Andy. So we've been covering a number of things uh, Noble Ape related, and uh, Bob was just pointing me towards a book on baboon metaphysics. So Andy, I have to apologise, because through the period of time that you did most of your work with Noble Ape, I was through a kind of relatively hellish uh, period of my kind of professional life, and a lot of the work that you did were kind of captured in emails. I think I, I was able to actually resolve a number of your early bugs, um, particularly associated with file handling. But some of the deeper bugs following, I just didn't have the the kind of after hours bandwidth to look into. Can you can you kind of introduce? I mean, because this is being recorded and it's going out to others than just the three of us who who know who you are, obviously. Can you introduce some of the stuff that you've been doing with Lobelite? Oh God, um, yeah. Um, first of all, you need not apologize because um, I've I've not done any work actually. I've just um, found it on the internet one day and I thought it's pretty interesting. I'm no programmer, nothing of that. And I don't understand much of it. I just read uh, what I could find online and I thought it's pretty interesting. So I ran it and sometimes I've had some issues and I just reported them to you or sometimes there, there weren't even issues of misunderstandings of my part or that I didn't know how to actually work it out. And yeah, Pretty, uh, I didn't know this was being recorded. I was just uh, being curious, and that's why I, I um, uh, connected here and thought maybe some interesting stuff is being said. But I'm a bit nervous now. No, no, don't, don't ignore the fact that it's being recorded. I shouldn't have even told you that. It's just a <laughs> basic legal requirement. The fact that okay. it's being recorded actually changes the nature of the discussion because it means, as we do through email interaction. It means not only that we can remember and go back and listen to this, but also that others can as well. Right. And I've had some success through doing this format, actually bringing in a lot of people over time. So the plan was to, to do a kind of open mic session with Noble Ape as well, with the view that folks will listen to this and want to kind of contribute in the future. Yeah, that would be nice, because... Um... As I see, it's mostly you and, and Bob doing all the work. So hopefully someone else gets interested, someone, yeah, more, uh, useful than I, because I don't even, I don't even know to script. To, to be clear, 
You are extraordinarily useful. Someone <laughs> who runs the simulation for long periods of time and finds eccentric issues is probably far more useful than I am at any given time in terms of going and trying finding those issues. The, the nature of um, what I'm trying to do with Mobile 8, particularly in terms of long-term stability and testing, is kind of implied through a lot of the development. It's not actively... I mean, I try to do as much testing as I can, and, and Bob does obviously as well, but to have yeah. someone who's doing dedicated, intensive, long-term testing of the simulation and finding things through that is very, very useful because, I mean, you you run the simulation for, you know, upwards of a thousand years in terms of simulation right. time. And the stuff that you find... <laughs> not real time, yeah. Yeah, I'm not real time. And the stuff that you find through that is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I found independently that there are phenomena particularly associated with the weather degradation, which seriously undermined the weather simulation for running for that length of time, almost to the point where I need a reset of the weather simulation periodically to keep it stable, or not stable, but keep it actually functioning properly. Um, but you find, um, particularly associated with the social interaction code and the social reporting code, a variety of issues which are actually really difficult to track down, um, which is in part the interesting thing about the stuff that you presented, was I looked at some of the issues and just thought, aside from file handling, which we've been able to fix now, Mm-hmm. A lot of the issues are really very difficult to reproduce without the saved files, which is the other part that you bring, is that not only do you run the simulation, but you're able to save the files at periodic points so we can go back and actually pick up the simulation just before whatever bizarre stuff happens. The only mm-hmm. thing that has been remarkably elusive is associated with the reporting, where occasionally there is, like, where there should be two two ape social interactions where only one ape is reported. Mm-hmm. And also the circumstance where there is unknown brain code being executed, which I also <laughs> find very, very curious because I've done a variety of kind of stability tests, which should pretty well eliminate that. I mean, now it explicitly reports it, but the way that that unknown brain code is injected is a kind of ongoing, ongoing problem. Was that a pointer outside of range or something like that? No, it seems to be actually some injection. It's not a pointer. Well, Perhaps fundamentally it's a pointer outside of range. It's some it's some variable which is injected into the brain code, like some additional information. I went through it's easy to report in a kind of, you know, minute to minute delta, which means you run the simulation, you start again from the same start, and then you run the simulation again okay. and you see where the injection might be occurring from. Those mm-hmm. are easy to fix, and I fixed those towards the end of last year, in November last year. The ones that Andy finds that are particularly interesting are ones that occur after a thousand years of simulation run, which is very, again, you have to trust the file format, but even then they're kind of ethereal in terms of the way in which he finds them. But maybe maybe there are also problems because uh, sometimes I um, love my my apes so much that when I run them certain time on a uh, a long time on a certain version and then comes out a new version, uh, I don't want to kill them all and, and start <laughs> over again. So I pick up the the saved file from the old version and run it in a new version. Maybe there's some some incompatibilities as well. Maybe some data forms changed. I don't know. We also need to fix that. I mean, that's something that we need to solve. Yes. Yes. And I, I really, I like the idea of loving the apes. I mean, I really, it's, it's <laughs> difficult for me. So there were certain circumstances, Bob found a bug recently that I fixed associated with the apes 
that if they if they got to the death condition overnight, they ate themselves alive again through the night. And you, <laughs> kind of zombie apes. Zombie apes that were. And I thought this is the kind of bug I actually kind of want to maintain. I don't want to be killing these apes. And then I thought, no, this is not your role here. But no, I think the the emotional attachment to the apes is an interesting phenomena, and certainly through yeah. your testing, um, your your ability to find issues through that uh, is is very good. Yeah, since I'm not a programmer, for me it's not data structures. It's, I, I try to imagine like uh, if, as if it was a story or a movie or something. In a exactly. movie, so no, it's just imagined. But when you watch it, it's you're involved and you say, "Oh God, uh, now what's going to happen?" And, and I'm <laughs> the same with the apes. It's not as um, dramatic uh, there because you just see dots moving around um, or lots of text who. Who hit whom and who, uh, groomed whom and whatever. But yeah, still, yeah. um, when I, when I read all the, the documentation that I found what is inside and, uh, running under the hood, what you don't see. And then if you imagine this, okay. And there's some brain behind it and, and they are seeing actually something, even though I don't see them with eyes, but I imagine that then I, I see them almost as, as pets or something like that. So that's why I don't want to kill them. Here's a question to you, Andy. When, if, if it ever got to the stage where you could actually see them, where you could see them interacting, where you could have all these elements visually for you, do you think it would be even more real for you through that experience? Because I think there's a, there's a group of users that are potential users that aren't current users that as soon as they could see those interactions, see the environmental, particularly the kind of maternal nurturing and these yeah, kind of yeah. things, then they would actually develop exactly what you're describing in a very real sense. Yeah, I think so too, because, um, it's very abstract. And if you don't read through a lot of text, then you say, what's that? It's, um, <laughs> the same with some, I don't know if I can mention, uh, other projects, but I, I read about. Throw names into the mix. Okay. I, I read also about, uh, Polyworld mm-hmm. or whatever, however it's pronounced. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's an active development any longer. And when I first ran it, um, it looked so boring. I said, what? I want something interesting. I want artificial life, not just cubes and doing whatever, um, stupid things. But when, when I read through it, then I thought, oh, it's interesting. But the first impression is uh, of someone who doesn't want to read through tons <laughs> of text things. Oh, it's just, uh, cubes there moving around. So boring. And, and here it's just, um, it's nice landscape, but dots. What, uh, what kind of attachment shall I have to the, a social attachment? No, um, emotional attachment. Shall I have two red dots that don't do anything but move around and have having, um, yellow dots flowing above them. But, um, yeah, that's only when, when, when I read the text that when the, the, yeah, the passion for it grew. But I also understand that the more graphics there are, the more computational resources go into the graphics and, and less into the other thing. So maybe mm-hmm. it should be kept simple, not too realistic. But some details could come and, and I think even some some more ways for, for the user to, to interact. I don't actually need interaction so much, but I think many people who play Sims, for example, they would like to, to just grab an ape and throw it into the water or whatever and <laughs> not just be sitting there idle in front of the screen and saying, okay, yeah, yeah, now they are eating, now they are doing that, but I don't have anything to do with them. I think, don't know, that's just out of the blue. So I think there's there's a phenomenon there um, 
there are many levels to that. I mean, my view is with regards to the rich graphics that there will still be a command line version of Noble 8. Polyworld is an interesting example because I, I've met Larry Yeager now, living in this part of the world, but the fellow who he had passed Polyworld on to, Larry Yeager now works at Google, and apparently part of his work at Google is not allowing him to work on Polyworld, which is quite strange and somewhat sad. But um, he passed it on to a fellow who has since, in some regard, become a reality TV star as well, and it doesn't look like he'll be maintaining Polyworld. I have this eternal fear of what happens to artificial life projects when their creators, you know. One of the good examples of this is actually Breve and John Klein. John Klein now has a family, which is, you know, no longer artificial life, now applied life, um, impacting <laughs> his life. Um, he he passed it on to a, a fellow called Kyle Harrington, who I met at the A-Life conference. But I, I do have this kind of eternal fear that if anything were to happen to me, or would actually happen to the apes in some like long-term sense, you do have this kind of maintenance aspect. But no, I think visualization has always been, I mean, no artificial life developer discounts visualization and the importance of visualization. And I think the ability to have, particularly as, as things evolve currently, a group of graphic artists and, and graphical programmers that were interacting, I mean, this Bob and I were discussing this initially on the call, associated with how yeah. do you actually get those people involved? Um, because they do represent the the window to the world, so to speak, in terms of uh, uh -huh. people that, as you say, aren't interested in reading, you know, pages and pages of text, and aren't we're interested in getting the understanding of the kind of emotional attachment that one might have to these, you know, particular simulated entities until they actually have a physical form that they do see interacting. So, Andy, um, a point that I wanted to make is we've moved to GitHub recently. And one of the things that I really wanted, even though you're not a programmer, if you can sign up to GitHub, rather than the mailing list as a means of posting your issues, you can actually post them through GitHub, uh, and which means that they are considerably more persistent than, you know, a mailing list. I mean, mailing list should be persistent in some form, but GitHub has this means of issue tracking, which means, for example, the cases where there is only one ape shown in a two-ape social interaction you could post those through GitHub specifically as issues, which would then be kind of, you know, red flashing lights constantly that needed to be fixed. And I think I sent you an email along those lines to try and introduce you to GitHub, just so you could basically start posting issues there as the place to post them. I, I got that mail. I got that mail, but still I, I didn't get the time to, to register there because I haven't encountered uh, new bugs right now. It, actually, it's not even running right now. Um... Because well, I my my computer sometimes likes uh, to overheat and switches itself off. So well, yeah. But um, I I keep that in mind that I I will go there to GitHub. I would um I would file your issues for you. The only difference is that GitHub has an interface where you would be an interactive participant as you filed the issues. So you would um as things were fixed or there were questions. I mean, it just takes it. I, I could actually go through the mailing list and file your issues specifically, which is what I should do. So at least they exist in this form. And then when you have the time, you can interact with them accordingly. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I don't know how, if they're still up to date, the, the issues that I've, that I've posted. So I will only, only, I think only new issues I will post on, on GitHub and the old ones on the mailing list, either they are fixed already or I don't know. 
maybe there were just no. I mean, my view is that all issues are important, and if I acknowledge that they're fixed, then they're fixed. If I haven't done any work, and mysteriously <laughs> they've become fixed, so much the better. But my assumption is that they are unfixed until they are fixed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Then I'll I'll go through that again. So, as a user of Noble Ape, Andy, are there any particular features or anything that you'd like to see in Noble Ape, aside from perhaps visualization? Um, what I was interested in was the generation number, but I think uh, it could have been, uh, it, it was already introduced, I don't know, I haven't, it's been some time that I've uh, looked for updates on the on the website, so I'm, I'm not updating very uh, regularly. So I don't know if you if you have that already or not, and um, because sometimes it's interesting to know, you know, it's it's been running so many years, but I don't know how long do the apes live? Is it still the first generation? Is it the second? Has there been um, significant uh, an, a significantly high number of generations where uh, evolution has already taken part or not? So that's why I, I was interested in, in in seeing generation numbers. Sure, I, I know it's a bit difficult to know because one the one uh, parent could be uh, fifth generation and the other parents third generation. So what is the child then? Is it sixth or fourth? So I thought maybe one could take the the minimum of the two numbers and the maximum and show that it's somewhere between fourth and sixth because you cannot always. I don't know. Yeah, it was just an idea. I think the highest, both both are important, right. but yeah, the the highest number perhaps gives the most interest. Mm-hmm. So is that already implemented or no? It's not. Well, just to correct that, I did actually put in some code related to that, ah. so they keep track of the generation of the uh, mother and father um, within the child, and that gets passed on down the generations. So you can get some idea of sort of the, the descendants, the, the level of descendancy, if you like. Is it displayed in a fashion that Andy could it's get? It's not displayed at all at the moment. It's just a number in the background. So um, that's to be uh, further dealt with in future, I think. Displayed and it's, in always, it's always the maximum num- number of the two. So like if the father's yeah. got two numbers, then he passes on the maximum number, and the mother's got yeah. two numbers, passes on the maximum. Okay. That's it, yes, yes. Okay, good. Because you, I guess, the, the minimum number is interesting as well, particularly when apes pass away. So you do, mm-hmm. but the maximum number actually is probably more interesting in terms of evolution, mm-hmm. I would imagine. I think both, I, I, I too think both are interesting. So imagine you have a 36th generation ape mating with a really, really a long-living first-generation ape, <laughs> and you would see that in, in their offspring that one was still first-generation, yeah. one was really advanced, and you wouldn't see, or you would see how how um, how the the discrepancies are. Now, how, so I think spread might be the the correct mm-hmm. word or divergence. So, how yeah. far they are away. So that's an interesting that's an interesting point. Okay, maybe we should include minimum as well. It's all up to you. It's just my thinking. I just tell you my, my points of, of view. But um... The interaction is the interesting part, because what you want in the spread is to know if there are still first-generation or second-generation apes existing in the simulation. And what you're really doing is... So, actually, what it should be is a search function between all apes to find the maximum and the minimum, and that is what is reported. 
You could also create a histogram of uh, that sort of thing as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that could be even more complicated than I, I thought. I thought only putting the numbers would be the easiest way to, to do it, the less work. And yeah, maybe a search function would be good as well. But I also really thought in one, in one individual to know if, um, if the parents have a big spread. So not only in, in all the society, but saying, okay, this is a, an individual that has really a fifth generation parent and a first generation parent. And yeah, right. but there's, there's maybe a way to deal with this. Uh, plotted as a two dimensional graph. Mm. Um, the mother's is on the X axis. The father is on the Y axis. And, and the individual is a point. So you can maybe look if there are clusters and things like that. Oh, okay. Might yeah. be a way to do it. I can imagine that at least. Yeah. That's something I, I would be able to interpret when I, when I see it. Yeah. And just going back to the idea of visualizations, um, there's a couple, but maybe one or two additional screens that I'm thinking of adding to the user interface. Uh, one would be like a medical type screen, which would show like heart rate and the vascular system and sort of changing diameters of blood vessels and things like that. And there would be maybe a, another um, with the digestion, the metabolism, showing the different stages and as it was eating and uh, you know, glucose and stuff like that. You should be able to combine those two together to actually create a hybrid of maybe, both those ideas, maybe, yes. which would look visually very interesting. Yeah. That sounds very neat. And and the good thing is if you say it's additional screens, it sounds like you can switch them off. So in case you are not at home and you just leave it running, they won't yeah. con- consume uh, CPU and, and so on because they're switched off. So you only switch them on when you want to really see it and switch yeah. it off. Just let the simulation run on its own without graphics when you go away. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The combination of that, this is again. So I seem to recall at some stage I had in array form, the original drawing of the noble ape in structure, which you could actually very easily add both the digestive and the kind of cardiovascular mm-hmm. elements to as well. Yeah. Well, if you've got any particular ideas, just uh, sketch them on paper and then photograph them and stick them online somewhere. Yeah, I, I can probably do it better in code, actually, because the oh, okay. code exists somewhere and I can actually write a... Um, I mean, for digestion... And, um, and cardiovascular, it's just a matter of basically placing the uh, effectively line vectors through the, you know, through the, um, eight. There was an existing skeletal, um, structure that I started to create through that as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you could actually get some really interesting. And what I'm looking for here is basically layering all these concepts so they become something that's, you know, the gestalt, that there's more than all the components. What I was actually thinking of was a sort of cartoon-esque version of the vascular system, a sort of stylized version, as you might see in a medical diagram, mm, exactly. rather than yeah. the specific parameters of the body. The difference is what you could do is, I mean, if you did it in line vectors, you could mm-hmm. have the line vectors getting thicker, almost like actually seeing the kind of blood flow, basically. That's exactly what I was thinking of, yeah. yeah. And I think that gives, a, again, a very strong visual connection. I mean, moving back to Andy's point associated with the dots on the screen, that people could actually start seeing, you know, seeing these components. It was funny, actually, when I met with um, Chris Adami, he was by far most condescending about the vascular and digestive system. I mean, he <laughs> just couldn't understand why you would actually include something like that. 
in something like Noble Ape and to have it drawn as a, a visual indicator that people were receptive yeah. to, I think would immediately completely admonish that critique. I mean, it doesn't... Well, if you're trying to simulate creatures, it would seem to me that uh, things like heart rate and stuff would be the, the vital things to simulate. Mm. I guess it's, it's, it's all the bits in between. I mean, this is, I think what we're doing here is actually finding points in space and then we have to construct the bits in between, which is exactly what we're doing. I mean, that's the nature of the, of the project. So, Andy, just before you came on, Bob and I were talking about um, the idea that if the landscape was deformable, so if the apes could, for example, dig trenches or potentially build huts or remove trees or these kind of things, with the addition of the weather, which basically eroded the land into the water, that the apes would have additional motivation to actually build structures and you know, retain their environment because their environment was constantly being progressively moved into the water if they didn't do these kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. That also gives interesting visual componentry to it, but it also, as Bob and I was were discussing, fundamentally changes the simulation. When you look at something like Noble Ape, I mean, particularly because you've looked at Polyworld as well, what kind of additional features would you like to see in terms of the environment, in terms of the terrain, in terms of these kind of things. Well, uh, in terms of Polyworld, um, you, there, there were some, some files where you could really, uh, change the world as well. But as I don't even script, I didn't ever know how to handle these things. So for me, Polyworld was just a green plane with a wall in between. So, um, that was not, not much, um, as to the environment, but the wall, which was important for them. And I think, um, uh, I don't, the problem is I, I don't really know how much details because there are so many more details under the hood that you don't see. So often I, I'm a bit afraid of um, requesting something that's been there for ages. So um, I think when you have obstacles like the wall in Polyworld or maybe uh, whatever, an abyss or a mountain, something, um, that would be um, interesting for the apes because uh, some people like the vascular systems and, and whatsoever – um, I'm personally, um, one of the, the other persons who, who like, uh, rather the, the, um, mental part of the simulation. I hope to see mm-hmm. the, the apes, um, interacting, being intelligent in quotation marks. And mm-hmm. I don't care so much about their heart rate. Mm-hmm. And as, um, Bob Yeager said once, um, uh, he, he doesn't want to care about the wet details. He just wants to care about the the behavior of his creatures, and I think that's um, what I'm interested in as well. I don't care how does the muscle work to move my leg, uh, and do I have to move one part backward and one in forward. I'm just interested in where do I want to go, and uh, I think the apes, if they know where to go, and I don't care much if they have three legs or two legs, and, and how do they move, but rather how do they solve problems. So I think um, having obstacles or having what you said, eroding landscape that they have to to counteract in order to maintain their um, their their habitat, or predators, even predators that that could have similar copied um, brain code, so that they're not just stupidly running straight forward, but that they are intelligent as well, so that they yep. have to um, develop strategies um like hiding or tricking the the predators or scaring them or whatever 
I think those things uh, could be interesting too, and 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 could lead to some some more um, development in, in in social terms, not just right. um, being there idling around and, and walking around because there's some part of code inside my brain that says, yeah, just go walking, keep walking, and maybe you find something to eat and eat it, and then go sleep and walk around and eat and sleep and walk around and eat. But there should be like, yeah. Uh, scars, food, so maybe they have to look for it, maybe they, they fight more about it, I don't know how much food there is so that's why, that's what I'm I'm saying that I, sometimes I'm afraid of uh, telling something uh, or requesting something that's been there already, so maybe there is little food, I don't know, because it's not really written there on the screen, but if there was too much, then I think they would just stupidly run around like um, like humans, if we get everything, then we are we have no motivation I mean, who would go to university and study, um, or who would work hard if, if everything was always on the table at home? So they wouldn't even have to leave. They would just eat and go sleep, <laughs> eat and go sleep and go mate, maybe. And that's it. Well, just as a little bit of a counterpoint to that from the book that I'm just recently reading about baboons. Um, apparently the main problem in the life of a, of a baboon is other baboons. It's not lions. It's not predators. Even though there is quite a lot of predation, uh, most baboons don't la- die from natural causes. They're nearly always eaten uh, by something else. Um, so being an intelligent creature in a social group is itself a problem, even if the others are not uh, different species, they're your own species. So they kill each other? No, they have all sorts of um, sort of political battles for who is the alpha, who isn't the alpha, who gets beaten up and who doesn't, who mates with who. Who grooms who, things like this. Okay. And there's a relationship between, uh, which exists in Noble Ape at the moment, which is between immune response and uh, rank within the uh, dominance hierarchy. So, in general, the higher, uh, the higher up you are within the hierarchy, the better your immune system performs, with the exception of the very top, uh, because they're always under stress. They might be uh, overthrown at any point in time by a rival. Okay. So there's a relationship between all these complex intelligence things and the very low-level stuff like immune system and whether your um, physiology is, is working. Okay. I'm, I'm not an expert on, on baboons either. Neither on programming nor on baboons. It's just my... What I've <laughs> been... When I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking, okay, what am I doing? Or what am I thinking? How is the world working? And if I see cats and, and mice... Chasing one another? No, mm-hmm. not the mouse, the cat, but the oh, other sometimes one. the mice chase the cat. It's actually particularly disturbing <laughs> to see. No, there, are, there are, yes, believe me, there are cases where there a substantial number of mice will chase a cat. I, I think the interesting part of, of Bob's narrative is, aside from the external predation, is the role of psychology, which again is a perfect mirror into humanity. I mean, we we are resource plentiful. Yet we construct a society which makes us appear to be resource scarce. I mean, mm-hmm. you have all these kind of strange metaphors within the baboons, which obviously is part of noble ape as well, um, which I think is very interesting. And I think the immune response and the heart rate and all these kind of things actually do, as Bob has noted, tr- trigger back into the psychology of the apes in ways in which, you know, may be subtle in some regard, but also are, are very much, you know, required elements. So, Andy, I guess 
what you say with regards to food scarcity is an interesting thing because when Bob came to the simulation, he had a, a food scarcity mechanism. I the scarcity actually comes through the landscape. So particular landscapes will have less food than other landscapes. But there's nothing implicit associated currently, although it could be relatively easily added, associated with, uh, for example, if apes eat too many of the berries in the berry bush, the berry bush can't reproduce. So there are no more berry bushes. I mean, basically, that the apes eat themselves out of various food types in the environments that they create. The it's water, already there? Well, no, this is the thing. It was there and it's gone. It's, it's ebbed and flowed. But it should be there, I think, for what you're describing. The water as well was always, the, the fish sauce in Noble Lake was always plentiful. And that was something mm -hmm. that I did in the early kind of pre-over-prey simulations was that there always needed to be some food resource that had maybe an additional energy tax or some additional tax, but was always there. I mean, the worst possible case scenario is that you have basically a kind of Noble Lake becomes a starved out environment and you just have basically the apes dying on mass because they've eaten themselves <laughs> into extinction. No, I would go to the kitchen and and, and uh, look for something to food and, and throw it to the computer. Yeah, put it in the CD drive or something. So yeah, I think the um the, the, this is the utopian environment that I created explicitly so the apes could form societies and move on with some food pressure elements, but not quite to the extreme of kind of eating themselves out of the environment. This is why the fish were always there to be. If everything else went, at least they would still be able to eat fish. Um, although it would probably change their, I mean, particularly through a lot of the stuff that Bob's implemented, the kind of gastrointestinal uh, effects of eating a substantially fish diet um, could be quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. How how uh, complex is the simulation uh, with regards to water? I know they can drown, but um, like um, because sometimes it looks when they swim to me and the graphical thing, it looks like uh, they were walking on the ground of the sea. Yes. And, and not really swimming up there. And are the can all apes swim, or are there apes that still cannot swim? Is it is water cooler than than the air, or is it like if there's a hot day and and they're like dying from overheating, can they go refresh themselves in the water? Or and is moving in the water more tedious than moving on land? Like for us, we can run easily on land, but swimming. So, so there are a number of parts to this. The first is. The whole consumption of water, as in fresh water, is something that should be part of the simulation but isn't. There are ways of absorbing. I think Bob has very basic, because obviously he has an excretory mm -hmm. system, there's very basic water consumption elements, but there's nothing associated with the actual yeah. consumption of water properly. The second part is the way that the graphics associated with swimming is appalling. I probably should add some floating on the surface. We'd, water would need to have a, a volume in the graphics of the simulation in order for that to be done, but it should be there, you're correct. Swimming in water is considerably more intensive than moving on land. There should be some conditions particularly associated with internal temperature. I think Bob might have added that, I'm not 100% yeah. sure. Uh, uh, just to come in on that, there is, at the moment, I don't think there is an explicit body temperature, but apes do have an amount of energy, and they also have an amount of body fat as well which comes through the metabolism. And when they swim, they lose energy at a higher rate, depending on the conduction through the body fat to the water. Okay. Which in turn takes energy in order to replenish the... Yes. So, yeah. They don't have the, the same feelings when we swim, like we enjoy swimming. It's not just tedious for us. It's not just consuming more energy, but 
we love swimming because it's a hot day, so they don't have that. Not yet. Well, I would say not yet. Potentially. I think the notion of the reason that the apes swim is to do with exploration more than anything. I mean, if there was a motivating force that caused the apes to swim, it was associated with getting to landforms, which typically they can see. When they can't see any landforms, that's when it becomes problematic um, in terms of swimming. The idea that some apes should not be able to swim is, is something that we really need to probably add explicitly, because that would be very interesting to have apes that just can't swim. But I think, I mean, my uncle did some strange experiments on his children and found at a relatively young age they could swim. Um, our loss of swimming is actually probably more conscious than it is anything else. Most animals, even animals that don't go into water on a regular basis, have the implicit ability to swim. It's one of these mm -hmm. curious things that humans, probably in large part through their own psychology, can't swim. But certainly m most mammals have the implicit ability to swim. Um, and I think that was the rule that I created when I started Noble Ape, was that the no all Noble Apes, irrespective of how... I mean, it is really quite curious that you can throw... You can put a six-month-old in water, and they will actually dog paddle to a certain extent. I mean, I'm not advocating in any way doing this, although my uncle has experimented <laughs> on his children in this life. Um, but there is some point, and it's the point where the conscious mind takes over where we lose our ability to implicitly swim. And I wanted to put in Noble Ape that all the apes could swim explicitly, but through injuries and a wide variety of other conditions, there should be reasons that the apes can't swim. Um, and I think it's an interesting problem associated with perhaps modelling more along the human line where um, we implicitly assume that we can't swim and then we act in a way which ultimately creates circumstances which means that we you know, drown. Or maybe it might be a learning thing. Maybe some apes might learn to be phobic of uh, yeah. the sea or water. Yeah. But no, the whole interaction with the water as being a really primary interaction, I, I agree, Andy, could be um, reworked substantially and in a variety of quite interesting ways. It's, it's still the, the emotional um, connection that I have to the apes. And, and when I went in summer to some lakes and I was swimming, I was th uh, thinking, oh, my poor <laughs> apes, they're... In the hot uh, apartment right now, they're not here. And then I thought, oh, they have water as well. So I was thinking, do they really enjoy swimming in the water or uh, not? So, but it's uh, it's a bit, uh, yeah. I know it's um, a bit ridiculous, maybe thinking about enjoyment. Like there was a discussion associated with wind chill, um, associated with them getting wet. So they get yeah. wet through the rain, obviously. I mean, well, perhaps not obviously, but they get wet through the rain. And this has a negative effect on them, which is supposed to channel them outside or ideally to create shelter fundamentally. But, you know, and I think the same could be done with regards to the water, actually maintaining wetness on the skin. And this notion of wetness actually taking out energy, which could be a positive thing if the apes were too hot. The whole notion of heat energy in these circumstances is something that could be relatively easily added to the simulation. And then you would have an additional dynamic. If there was this notion of body temperature, that the apes, if they got too hot, they would actually seek out water. Um, and these kind of things would actually be very interesting and would be a simulation in and of itself, very much part of the metabolism simulation, I guess. But also probably would give um, an additional, uh, you know, scale of value analogous to uh, hunger, social, sex, fatigue. If heat 
was one of those. Well, just to add uh, an additional point to that, um, just thinking of it, there is a temperature associated with blood vessels, with blood mm. in individual blood vessels. So, yes, there is a sort of overall body temperature. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly, I mean, this is why I wanted to do these kind of interactions, Andy, because you are specifying features <laughs> in this discussion, fundamentally. Yeah, but mainly out of, yeah, too much... Um too much fantasy and uh, too not, little realism. Not, not at all. <laughs> Sometimes maybe these things that I request are really um, undoable. So always bring me back to to reality and tell me, no, this we can't do because we don't have supercomputers. Or yeah, it would be the exactly the opposite is true. Is that everything is possible? That's the reason I created Noble Lake was actually to go along the everything is possible line. It's just you have to think about how you're going to create these things. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Um, you're very much uh, interested in philosophy and, and things uh, like these, uh, Tom. So what's your, uh, yeah, your opinion, uh, on, on things like emotions and, and feelings? As we were talking about, uh, we, uh, enjoy swimming in water. It's not just numbers that we have and, and we don't say, oh, our, our temperature is too high. We need to do that. We need to go swimming because otherwise we die. Or we must drink something because otherwise we die. But we do it. We feel a need, and and we also feel um, enjoyment. We feel we, we we like it when when we drink something, when we swim. Um, and yeah, some people say that's the the immortal soul, and and a computer could never do that. But others argue that well, it's all our brain, and our brain is a neural network. So I know that Noble Ape is not really a neural network, but um, is is it, in your opinion, not maybe not right now, but is it something that could be done in some way to have artificial creatures having emotions, having feelings? Like not just um, there is a, a rule saying that temperature is high, go to water, but really go to the water and be laughing and be playing with the water. So... I haven't, I mean, there are a number of levels to that question. I mean, my own view is that everything is, is simulatable. Um, but if you take that to an extreme, the individuals within the simulation don't need to be conscious of the underlying elements that motivate their behavior. Uh, that's the, that's the element where, you know, it's not associated with kind of robots that say, you know, it's hot now. But through a combination of factors, natural experience, these kind of things. I mean, playfulness, particularly playfulness as observed in children and animals, is a really fascinating thing. On some fundamental level, there are, there are muscles and there are electrons firing and all this kind of stuff. But the gestalt, what you see in terms of the combination of all these factors in playfulness, also engages you know you as an individual on an emotional level too. Mm-hmm. On some fundamental level, just having the bits doing the, the various functions obviously produces the outcome fundamentally. I mean, the interesting thing associated with the soul as a philosophical concept is it fills the unknown. As you, as you, as you, as science, as whatever philosophy discovers more, then the soul is something, but the unknown also becomes bigger. 
because the more you know, the more you know about what you don't know, too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my view is that um, the soul, in an abstract sense, exists as the unknown. And if you have a kind of science or engineering interest, then the unknown is what you're aiming to explore. I think that a lot of what we see in terms of uh, playfulness and interaction, these kind of things, will be simulated or simulatable quantities. And what interests me is actually creating simulation environments, as you, as we described with Nova Lake, for example, where people lose track of the fact that this is actually a computer simulation and start appreciating it on a, um, you know, a biological level. Because I think through those kind of insights and that kind of interaction, a lot of the general disdain or um, lack of understanding associated with the exploration of these underlying principles is, you know, is eliminated. I mean, I think the the nature of these kind of problems requires firstly complexity and also simulation, but also it requires, as, as Bob has, has identified, an ability to, you know, set points along the line and start working in those areas and then connect the points together. So my view is in the foreseeable future, if we cannot create simulated environments which don't, you know, that, that don't show, you know, elements of wonder and playfulness and enjoyment in the environments, then we're, you know, we're losing track of what we're actually trying to do through these kind of simulations. In terms of now taking, okay, so you have a simulation, you have entities in the simulation, you then create robots from those entities. This is a process that has fascinated me and fascinated me for well more than a decade, associated with taking ideas from Noble Ape and actually creating robots that embody some aspect of Noble Ape. And certainly with Bob's interaction, the social robotics element from MIT has gone into Noble Ape as well. So it's some way a shared path currently. But if I didn't believe that I could create simulated, well, through Noble Ape, robots that embodied aspects of the Noble Ape in the real world, I think I would only be kind of partially interested in this. I think the ability to create simulated, evolve entities in simulation and then create those entities in, in a real form is, uh, you know, also part of the interest in these kind of projects and certainly is one of my interests too. I'm obviously more heavily focused on on the simulation component, but I'd like to see people such as Bob, who have a background in robotics, get mm-hmm. involved in the kind of robotics embodiment component as well. I right. My view is that it's not about disenchantment. It's not about actually taking away from these ideas of, um, you know, the unknown, the soul, these kind of things. It's actually about showing that through a series of applied cases, you can actually reconstruct these kind of, um, you know, these kind of experiences. And then the unknown becomes something else. It's not that you are solving every problem. You just have a series of additional problems in another space that you then have to look and solve. Um, if you talk to, you know, if you talk to scientists that look at um, aspects where they're constantly solving spaces and they're moving deeper, it's not that the solution space gets any, or the potential solution space gets any less rich it's just that they are dealing with different problems at any given. And my view is that the same is true with simulation that, you know, it's not that we will solve these problems, but we'll get into different problem spaces and then just move progressively through them. And hopefully what comes out of that is engaging and 
you know, I'm 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 looking at a, a bed full of sleeping cats currently, and just imagining, you know, in in sixty years' time, maybe two of the cats will be, you know, potentially, um, you know, bionic cats, and they will interact with the other cats, and the other cats won't know. I mean, on some fundamental level, that they're interacting with robot cats. But I mean, I think the potential is out there for you know for all these kind of things to come from the kind of simulation that we do, and it, ultimately. There's this notion of the futurist as someone who talks about the future having had no applied connection to the present. And I think through simulation, you start having projections of the future, but it's very much connected with what you're doing in the present, if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So does has that answered your question in any way, shape or form? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it did, I think. Very much in detail and long explanations, but yeah, it did. Thank you. So anyway, I I'm probably going to edit this and then put it out in some audio form. Do you have any Do you have any concluding thoughts? Any concluding ideas you want to put out there, Andy? Concluding thoughts? Uh, no, I'm no, no. <laughs> well, I mean, to, to reiterate the way I started our conversation, I'd like to thank you for your work here because although you see it very much in in the light of you know, not having abilities and what have you, the abilities that you've shown just in terms of tenacity and perseverance are exactly the abilities that are needed um, for, for what you've found. And similarly, the stuff that you've added in terms of general discussion, the, the notion of, you know, happiness through playing in water and all the components that would go into that are certainly features that can be enacted in the simulation in a, you know, in a relatively near-term kind of time frame. So, I mean, thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah, you're welcome, and and thank you for for the hard work you're doing all the time, which is certainly not uh, not easy either, both of you. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward any new features, and I will always keep an eye on the updates, even though I don't regularly update, but I I keep an eye on it. And you're updating through GitHub now. Correct? Yes, yes. Terrific. Of course. Terrific. <laughs> of course. But last time when I updated, I read something, uh, I don't know, I think on your homepage that, um, made some changes, I think, and you, you could display things like where, where apes are going and, and where they are moving and in which areas, like territories. Oh, yes, the territory stuff. So that was originally Bob's code, which I then yeah. just added visualization to. But that's only in the in the Mac version, or because after I read that, I I grabbed the code from from GitHub, I think it was, or still the old uh, site, I don't know. But it was after I read that, and I got the source code and I compiled it, and it still looked the same here. So the problem is um, on the on the Linux version, the version that you're using, the um, the menuing system changed in GTK, which meant that all the function all the functionality that came through menus. I didn't. I wasn't able to link. I should. I should add the functionality through the command line as well. I need for every menu there needs to be a command line. <laughs> so that eliminates the problem. As a point there, the um, uh, the territories grid now appears within the Qt user interface. Oh, wonderful! So okay, Andy, you can get the uh, the territories. You just need to get the Qt interface, and that that builds from command line. Correct, Bob. Uh, yes, it does. Yes. Cool. Okay, so I'll I'll do an update maybe tonight or tomorrow, and then I'll I'll see if it works. That's a, the small thing I wanted to pass back to you, Bob. Um, mm-hmm. the QTNA. Could we just call yeah. it QT because it's already in the NA project? Would you be happy with that? 
Uh, we could do, yes, I suppose, yes. I, I was just wondering whether that might clash with any other applications, which were QT applications. Oh, so it has to be uniquely named. Oh, because, uh, so what is created is called QTNA, is that Yeah, right? yeah. So if you're installing it to USR bin, and there happens to be something else called QT, then there might be... Uh... But you can't, so the directory name has to be the same as the executable name. Um, not necessarily, no. No, could be different. My only concern is the, the uh, directory name. So if I can I can change the code so the directory name and the executable name are different. Oh yeah, the directory name name could definitely be changed. Cool, yeah. easy. I'll do that. Okay. Well, thank you also, Bob, as always, for uh, for your kind of continued contribution, insight, and um, always good reading list. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'll um, I think I might I think I might make this a simulcast and put this in multiple feeds just to instigate some change in a variety of different areas. I think. Should I risk putting it in the biota feed? Why not? Let's see how derogatory I actually am through the conversation. <laughs> and we'll, we'll edit it accordingly. But yeah, thank you both very much. And yeah, my plan is to do these things on a kind of monthly basis with the view that um, more people will hopefully show up as the audio yeah. comes out and it'll kind of cycle accordingly. Okay. Yeah. You should announce it early enough so that people know. And yeah, I think there could be some more, uh, some more action here and not only the three of us. <laughs> I, I think I even have a theme. I think I even have theme music for this, so I, I might actually do this under a new musical theme as well. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk to you both soon. Take care. Okay. Hey, bye. Have a nice evening. <laughs>